We also will have much of what we're going to go through on the screens. Luke chapter 2, we've arrived at chapter 2. We've been in chapter 1 for four sermons. Walk through that slowly. Remember, 400 years, God was silent, the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. 400 years, theoretically, God was silent, certainly from Revelation and miracles uh, that we would know about, but God wasn't asleep on the throne. He was at work, and we'll look at that in in this morning's passage. But Luke opens, and, and we have some miracles right from the beginning. Angel, the angel Gabriel has arrived, and God speaks through Gabriel. And the promise of two very special children, the forerunner, John the Baptist, through Zechariah and Elizabeth, normal conception, supernatural conception, but normal between husband and wife, too old to conceive, but God said you will have a son. You will name him John, and he'll be the forerunner of the Messiah. Then Gabriel, six months later, goes to Mary and says, you will conceive How is that possible? She says, I'm a virgin. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be overshadowed by the Most High. What a beautiful picture. And you will give birth to a son. You will call him Jesus. That's the Messiah. And he encourages her to to go and confirm that God is doing conception miracles again. He says, even your, your relative Elizabeth is six months pregnant. So then Mary runs off to visit with Elizabeth. And then we have Mary's beautiful Magnificat. Remember that? The first four Christmas carols. Do you know what they are? You do if you were here a couple weeks ago and we talked about it. They come right out of Scripture. They come out of Luke. The first one is the Magnificat from from Mary. My soul doth magnify. That's the Latin Magnificat for magnify, the Lord. And, And we walked through that. It was beautiful. And then we went to Zachariah's song, the Benedictus, Blessed Be God. Just a beautiful picture. And then we'll get into the Gloria uh, from the angelic song that is sung. And I told you that uh, Brock's had the great privilege over the years to sing those first three. And they're beautiful to hear in song. Just beautiful to hear it uh, done by, by, he's done it with the Stetson choirs. And it's beautiful to hear. So you read them. And these are songs that don't come out of the Psalms. They're right there in the Gospel of Luke. And then the final one, Simeon's Nook Demitus means you may dismiss your servant now. Simeon prayed that I would not die until my eyes would gaze upon the promised Messiah. And Simeon held the little baby Jesus. And he gave us that beautiful, beautiful Christmas canticle. So we'll go through those two when we get to them. But we've gone through that. And now we arrive here in Bethlehem, the birth of the promised Messiah. Jesus. Luke 2, 1 to 7, hear now the word of God. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, 
a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant infallible word. Pray with me, please. Father, it is no accident we're here this morning, everyone by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, make it a word of salvation, whether someone here in the sanctuary or by way of the internet watching this service. Make it a word of salvation. Raise them from death to life. Give the gift of repentance and faith. For those in the midst of storm winds that are blowing, make it a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are tired and weary and heavy laden, a word of rest. All things to all people that some might be saved. So come now, fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, the birth of Jesus under two headings. Number one. The background, we're going to take a look at the brief background. We can't go too deep into it. We don't have enough time. But we'll lay a foundation and we'll continue to build upon it as we go through the gospel according to the good doctor, Luke. And then finally, we'll look at the birth. And we'll continue to advance in those two themes as we move forward in the coming weeks. But let me ask you a question. What is the greatest event in the history of the world in your mind? It depends on who you ask, uh, would depend on the answer that you would receive. But it seems to suggest to me that even the world itself has made a proclamation of the greatest event in the history of the world because time itself is recorded as either before or after his birth. You're familiar with the letters B.C.? You know what that stands for? Of course you do. Before Christ. How about A.D.? You remember that? Not after his death. It would miss 30-plus years. No. Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Now, to be more politically correct today, you'll see some other letters trying to be more sensitive to those who, who do not believe in the Christian faith, but the world has already placed their stamp. Today, you might see CE, the common error, or BCE, before the common error, but make no mistake, the world has made it clear the greatest event in its history was the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything measured either before or after. Let's take a look. Luke 2, 1. A little bit of background. Remember, Luke is a historian. He's not just an inspired gospel writer. He's a historian. And how do we discover historical information? How do we gather that? How do we gather it when it's, when it's dealing with with religious history, Bible history. We gather it the same way that we gather any kind of history, secular history in the world. You use the same rules and the same tools. And Luke knows that. And he is a serious historian. And as much as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he still does the legwork. He still does the investigation. He still goes out and he digs. And he looks to make sure that what he writes is accurate. It is true. We understand it as the inerrant, infallible word of God. But make no mistake, he gained his information, not just by inspiration, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, he used normal methods to gather his info. In those days, what days? The days we've just talked about in chapter 1. The days that now God is speaking again. 
The intertestamental period has come to an end. Angelic beings are here. Miraculous conceptions are taking place. And the great promised Messiah is now to come. So these are the days. Caesar, Augustus, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Just a couple points here so that we can understand that Luke relates the events of the birth of Christ to world history. You realize your religious worldview is the only one, the only one in the world that is rooted in historical events. One after another after another. And Luke lays that out for us. Palestine is under Roman rule, and Luke dates the birth of Jesus by the common method of referring to rulers. And he does that. Who is Caesar? Take a look. His birth name, Gaius Octavius. It's important that we see that. Caesar is not a name. Caesar is a title. A title like king and emperor. Many Caesars. Many. And Augustus is, is, is an adjective. It's, it's, it means honored, revered, highly exalted. It, and that was bestowed upon Octavius by the Roman Senate. So we have this great Roman ruler who reigned. We, we know the dates. B.C., before Jesus, 27 B.C. to 14 A.D., A.D. 14. Forty-five years this man has ruled. It's amazing the amount of time that he has put in and, and, and how much has been accomplished in that time frame. And we'll look at that as we get to the end. So that gives us a, a, a framework of who this Roman Leader, And this is the civilized, conquered world where the census is taking place. Not the uncivilized portions of the world. But the Roman Empire, make no mistake, is vast. Luke 2.2. First census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Without getting into any of the theological debates, there has been information that has been gleaned through archaeological uh, digs and studies that Quirinius actually served as governor in two separate occasions. Because some will say he served in A.D. 6. He started in his service as governor, and that is true. But he also served before the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have him serving around 6, 5 B.C. to A.D. 1, and then we have him serving again at 6 to 10. So it keeps it in the framework. But remember, if we didn't have history to prove that, we would still believe the Bible is the infallible word of God. But never have they been able to disprove any of it. And if Luke is writing about a census that's taking place with Quirinius as the governor, there was no opposition to that back in those days when they all would have known who was governor. So 2,000 years later, it seems to be silly for us to try to uh, discuss and, 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 and nitpick through these things. Quirinius was governor. The census took place. Luke 2, 3. Everyone went to his own town to register. Imagine the power that this great Caesar had. He was in charge of everything in the known world. And he ruled as if he was a god. In fact, chiseled on the ruins of an old government building in Asia Minor, 6 B.C. are these words. The most divine Caesar. Now notice the inspired irony. 
Caesar Augustus was trying to make himself a god. God was making himself a man. God. Caesar is ruling. God is reigning. And that's the same today. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. God raises up rulers and God takes them down. And he uses all of them to accomplish his purposes. That's it. That should bring you comfort today. And you'll see when we get to the very end. Moving forward, Luke 2.4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem. You always go up to Bethlehem based on its elevation. It's a beautiful picture going up. Toward God. When you come out of Bethlehem in Jerusalem, you're always going down. It's a beautiful picture. To the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Bethlehem is a beautiful word. Some of you know exactly what it means. Beth means house. Lechem, bread. The house of bread. What does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. You're familiar with the word probably in a number of other ways. You know the word Bethesda? Some of you know it personally. You've been treated there. Your family members have been there. It's called the house of grace, Bethesda. It's the pool. Remember the pool we read in the Gospel of John? John 5. Heard of the term Bethel? Bethel, El for God, house of God. So here we have Bethlehem, the house of bread. The house of bread. But it's even more important. It's fulfillment. It's the fulfillment of a prophecy. You know when the prophecy took place? 700 years before the birth of this Christ child, Micah, in the fifth chapter, second verse, writes these words. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, used to be called Ephrata, and the name changed to Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you. Notice the phrase, out of you. Birthed out of you, if you will. Coming out of Jerusalem. Coming out of Bethlehem. Coming out of the holy city. To be sure, out of the womb of Mary. But a beautiful phrase. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Who does that apply to? Certainly doesn't apply to any of the earthly kings, but only to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. The ancient of days, the eternal, everlasting God. The Messiah would be born through David's line in Bethlehem. Let's take a look at 1 Chronicles seventeen fourteen. This would be the Davidic covenant. We went through the covenants together very briefly. Remember that last week? What is the Davidic covenant promise? What is the promise in the Davidic covenant? The promise is to regain, to reclaim, to get back what we once had. What did we have in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and he made Adam and Eve in his image? What were they given? They were given dominion. The Davidic covenant is giving us dominion again. This is the promise that Jesus will rule and will reign on David's throne forever and ever and ever. We will regain the dominion we once had. That's why when you preach the gospel, you never start with a sinner in need of a savior. You go back to the beginning of the story and you tell them what we had. We had all of the promises that God gave. The Abrahamic promise, the promise of land, we had it. We had all of the world. That was given to Adam and Eve. We had the promise of people. We had the promise of the seed. We had the promise of blessing. We had all of those promises. 
And now we get those promises back through the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the picture from David, from the house of David. The throne will be established. Then you'll remember when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the final week, Matthew 21, 9, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Prophecy accomplished. Imagine pinpointing anything. 700 years. And then when you take into account the story and the small window of time, if, if there's no census decreed, the birth happens in Nazareth. If they arrive late, it happens on the road outside of Bethlehem. If it happens when they leave Bethlehem, it shows us God cannot be trusted. For his prophecy was left unfulfilled. Find one, just one, just one. And then you can disregard the entire book. As R.C. Sproul has said many times, if there is one maverick molecule anywhere in the universe outside of the control of God, then God can be trusted for nothing. Either God is sovereignly in control of everything or nothing at all. What a powerful truth. Jesus must needs be born in Bethlehem. So Caesar is ruling and God is reigning. And Jesus, in the right window of time, is in Bethlehem. A beautiful picture. Moving to the fifth verse. He went to register with Mary, pledged, pledged again, implying the virgin birth. Very important for us to remember that. Pledged, and that's the same as really being married. It's not like our engagement time here. In this cultural context, people get engaged and break it off all the time. Back then, when you're betrothed, you're as good as married. It would take an a article of divorce in order for you to be separated. And that's exactly what Joseph was thinking, right? Joseph is thinking when, when, when Mary says, I'm, I'm pregnant, and, and it wasn't because of a man. It was God who came to me, and I'm pregnant. And you can only imagine Joseph going, man, where did she come from? What do you say to that? Right? I mean, what kind of story is that? At least, at, at least, at least Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah were husband and wife. Okay, they're too old to conceive. So, so you had a strong fish swimming, and it worked. It came together. But this one here is just, it's crazy. So he wants to put her away. And there's two options, divorce or stoning. So the angel has to show up and say, hold on. This is of God. She's a virgin. She is who she says she is. And Joseph then understands, becomes part of the whole picture. It's beautiful, the virgin birth. It's beautiful. So now, before we move into the birth, we're trying to identify the date and the time, and it's, it's, it's virtually impossible to do that. We can only get to a window. What we, what we pretty much really do know, there's no zero, right? So we know he wasn't born in zero. So it's not B.C., 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 then zero. And then A.D. 1, 2, it's, it's, it's B.C. 1 and A.D. 1s, but it's not there. It's somewhere a little before then. We know it's not December 25th. We know that. Theoretically, it's not. And, and, and there's reasons we talk about that generally every Christmas season. We talk a little bit about that, how we got to that date. But none of that really matters. 
What matters is there's a window of time. 6 to 4 BC is what it looks like, is the, is the time that most scholars will agree upon was the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 6 to 4, moving towards that, that final BC year and then advancing from that. Historical evidence is really too incomplete. So there's two approaches. The first, you analyze references to known historical events, which is what Luke has been doing. He's been establishing the historical events by using rulers at the time who have been clearly established in historical records. So we do that. And then the second way is you work backwards from the estimation of the start of the ministry of Jesus. And and we do that. So we come up with somewhere between 6 and 4. And then we can use this passage. This is a powerful passage. Ready? Matthew 2.16. Take a look at this. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under. Well, we have the dates of Herod's life. We know that he died. Uh, Herod was born somewhere around 73, 72, 71 B.C., but he dies in, in four, uh, 4 B.C. So he dies, and, and so there's a small window, and, he, and when he gets outwitted, he says, we're going to go back two years. You're going to go back two years and kill all the baby boys two and below because now he's, his kingdom is being challenged. There's a king that has been born, theoretically. So he goes back and wants to kill all the little ones. So if we go from four when he dies and we back up two years... We've got six to four, so that's, that's as close as we can get. So somewhere between six and four, Jesus is born. That's what we have, and that's, that's good enough. We don't need any more than that. Herod, you know, Herod the Great, uh, remember the temple that was rebuilt? Remember the second temple in Jerusalem? Herod was part of that. He was raised a Jew, but uh, he was friends of Rome. The Sanhedrin had condemned him. He was, an, he was from the line of the Edomites, from Esau, if you will. But he was no friend of, of, of Israel, but he, in his building projects, he was part of Herod's temple. He was part of the rebuilding of the temple. So there was some good that he did. But he's a great figure to help us anchor in the time frame. So we've done that. Okay? Let's go to the birth. Chapter 2, 6 and 7. While they were there, notice the simplicity of the language. The time came for the baby to be born. Ready? Here it is. Think of all the pomp and circumstance that goes with this phrase. And she gave birth. Wow. I couldn't stop talking when Brock came out. I just, I couldn't. After I had passed out and it had to be revived and all of that, you know, I, I couldn't stop talking. And she gave birth. It's striking how simplistic the language. No fanfare, no pomp and circumstance for the king of kings who has now come. To her firstborn, it's instructive for us to understand what this is. This is important. It's a couple things. Uh, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Uh, Mary had other children. Uh, She was a virgin. Uh, The Holy Spirit conceived in her this child, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And and this word is used by Luke for a reason. Take a look at the word in the Greek, prototokon. And we actually had a Greek scholar here this morning and confirmed that I was on track. He's teaching Sunday school right now in the fellowship hall for us. Sam was here. Uh, so it's, it's always great to bring a few of those words out when he's here and show him that, you know, I, it's not all of it isn't still Greek to me. There are a few Greek words that, uh, but this is an important word. Prototokon means firstborn. It means firstborn for a reason. The other term that would have been used would have been mono, mono, monogenes, which would mean the only son. But that's not what happened. There, there were other children. There were sons and daughters born to Mary. This is the prototokon. And why is it important? Well, it, it, it's not so much important just to tell us that she had other children. There's a deeper uh, practical importance to it. As the firstborn, the primary right to the family inheritance goes to him. 
What does that mean? Well, as the primogenitor, he receives the family blessing. So now you ask, what kind of family blessing does Joseph and Mary have? Joseph is what, 15? She's 12 or 13? What do they have? So here's the question. What was his inheritance as the firstborn? And, and Luke is clear in writing that. Prototokon is there for a reason. So what, what was his inheritance? Was it money? Was it land? Was it title? No. What was it? It was the throne of Israel, God's kingdom. There it is. That's how important that becomes. He's the heir. He's the promised heir. The promise was given to who? Well, the, the very first promise in Genesis 3.15, you remember that. So the promise that's, that's made in Eden. But that promise flows through Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And then that promise flows through Abraham to David. And it flows through David where? Ultimately comes out here with you. He's in the line. He's in the promise. He's the promised seed. The seed in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head. The seed of the serpent. He's the firstborn. He has the right to the throne and to the kingdom. That's beautiful how that's laid out for us. Then let's just walk through the rest of the passage Gently, we won't go too deep. Let's just walk through. This is just, it's beautiful to to see these words. And she gave birth. A very common birth, but an uncommon baby. She gave birth like all mothers. Every mother in here, you've given birth. She gave birth just like you. It's a regular birth. Supernatural conception. Supernatural child, but a very natural birth. Common, but an uncommon baby. And she gave birth. It's striking. Striking. Swaddling cloths. What is that? It's, it's not uncommon. Imagine what the baby's coming out from, being comforted inside that womb, and all of a sudden you're out now in the, in the world, in the open air in the world, and you, is it any wonder they start screaming? I don't think they even need to be slapped on the behind, do they? I mean, they're inside this beautifully warm and cozy place, and all of a sudden, ah! So she wraps him. She wraps him in strips of cloth. Very common, not uncommon. Nothing real special there yet, but it gets special. It gets special. I want to show you why. He's almost mummified, the way they wrap with those strips of cloth. The whole body's just, just wrapped in tight, okay? Stay with me on that. Now we have to go to the next part. And placed him in a manger. What does that mean? What does it mean? We all have pictures of that. A manger really is a long open box or trough. That's number one. It certainly wasn't what I thought it was growing up in our house. We had a manger scene, and an old one. Mama had it when she was little, and it was our favorite to take it out and and set it up on top of the the TV, but we weren't allowed to to put baby Jesus in. He had to hide him behind the like the barn, there was a little barn, and and the manger, which we all thought the manger was, because we call it a manger scene, is the little box, a little wooden box, right? Little legs, little wooden box, and Christmas morning, we'd all run out, the five of us, and we'd kind of like fight our way through, see who would be the first one who could get the the baby and put him in the box. I used to like to win that battle. I'd put him in a box. I got Jesus in the box. That's not the manger. That's not the picture this, this, is, this is a, a box generally that's carved out of... I'm, I'm going to tell you the story. There was no room in the inn. We'll get to that in a moment. The inn. Don't picture an inn like you have here. But for a moment, picture an inn. Picture a hotel. You have a living space for people. What do you have around the living space for people? 
A place for what? Parking. You have to put your cars. In, in the ancient days, they had a living space. Let's, let's call this in a, a two-tier location. They have a living space. The second tier are for those to stay and to live. The first tier was for them to park their animals. It seems to suggest that Mary and Joseph are on the first level with the animals. Okay? Wrapped in the swaddling bands. Now take a look at the picture of what this trough could look like. Take a look. There it is. The Greek word fatne. The Greek word fatne, a feeding or water trough carved out of limestone. Why is that important? Well, you ask the question, what was Jesus born for? And there's a lot of ways to answer it, but simply stated, you could say that Jesus was born to die. Right? That's right, he was born. He came into this world to die, to pay for our sins. So I want to show you the picture of the beginning and the end. I want to show you the picture of what he was laid in at the very beginning, wrapped in swaddling bands, almost mummified, laid in a tomb-like structure, the stone structure. And where do we see that? Further in the New Testament when we get to the end of his life. Go with me. Go with me to Mark 15, 46. And I want you to put the picture together. Remember, many dwellings were carved out of stone back then, sides of mountains and hill areas and many stone structures. Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, that's Jesus, wrapped it in linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of... Okay, so you have a picture of the beginning of the life of the Lord Jesus laid in a tomb-like structure carved out of limestone. 30-plus years later, he's laid in another rock place, the tomb wrapped in linen as the Savior of the world. Three days later, of course, he leaves those linen behind stained with his blood, and walks out alive. We'll get to that later in our discussion. No room in the end. Finally, there's no room today either. That sign still hangs on the wall of the world today. There's no room. Even, even in many Christian homes, in many church-going folk, you see just for expedience sake, the confirmation that there's no room in the inn. They write the word Christmas with an X in front of it. And they remove the word Christ. Xmas. Who does that? There's no room for Jesus today. So the question is, is there room in your heart for him? Have you made room for the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that sign still hangs on the world. No vacancy here for Jesus or those who follow him. How do we close? Watch this. Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time. 400 years God is silent and God speaks. Then he speaks through Gabriel. And Gabriel comes to Zechariah who is in the temple. Two weeks of the year. He has his temple duties. He is serving at the altar of incense. And there's Gabriel. Zechariah doesn't believe him. So he's stricken. Can't speak, can't hear. But he knows he's going to have a baby. He's got to go home. He's got to write it all down for his wife. So in the fullness of time, God was at work those 400 years. He gets everything ready. Everything is converging and the time is full. What does that look like? Just going to give you three pieces. Ready? And this is, this is, this is God at work. 
Those 400 years, people say God was asleep. He's not asleep. He was working and setting everything up for the spread of the good news of the gospel. Three things. Ready? Number one, the Roman road system. Nothing like it. Nothing like ever seen like it back in the ancient days. This Octavius and the work that they did in structuring the road system made travel easy. Number two, not only was travel easy, it was peaceful. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This was how vast the Roman Empire was. The borders were soft. Travel was easy. There was no fighting anywhere. It was a wonderful time. And then finally, the lingua franca. What was that? The Grecian civilization provided a language that was common. So they could speak and they could understand. You have this travel. You have this peace. You have a common language. And what do you have? The enormous spread of the gospel. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, here's something for you to take with you. Don't miss this. Ready? And then we go to the Lord's table. God is sovereign. And you would agree that God is sovereignly in control over those who knew what was going on in the story. Yes? Who knew what was going on? Elizabeth and Zechariah knew. God was sovereignly in control. He, he, he took his ability to speak and hear. He gave them the ability to conceive. They, ha- they knew they were beyond the age of childbearing, and they had a son. They knew. And God was sovereignly in control over them. He was also sovereignly in control over Joseph and Mary. They knew. They knew what God was up to through the angel Gabriel. And they knew that They, too, are going to have a special son. And the first was the forerunner, and this now was the Messiah himself. They knew God was in control. But also, make no mistake, there was sovereign control over those who knew nothing. Who knew nothing? Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was ruling over the Roman Empire and decreed, decreed that all would go back to their hometown and all he does in the sovereign providence of God, he is used to fulfill the prophecy from Micah 700 years before. He knew nothing. Herod knew nothing. Quirinius knew nothing. And God was in sovereign control over all of it. Now I'm going to show you something you'll never forget after you see it today. I promise. I never forgot it when I saw it. I've been waiting to show you this one. Take a look on the screen. Look at the first word. That word says sovereign, yes? Watch what happens to it now. I want you to look at this. Take a look. I want you to take that one with you when you leave. You see what just happened with that word? That's reigning. God reigns. That's what the word sovereign means. God is reigning over everything. He's reigning over those that know not the Christ, who are enemies of the gospel, who hate the things of God. God is reigning over all of that. That's the truth that you need to take with you. That's what, no matter what is happening right now in your life, those who know you and are for you, God is reigning over. And those who are against you, And don't know your God and care for your God. God is reigning over them too. That's the truth 
of understanding who this God is. Your God reigns over everything, including every aspect of your life. Right now, right where this finds you. It doesn't matter what the doctor says. doesn't matter what's happening in school and the teacher has sent the report home. God is reigning over every single aspect of your life. Trust him. Trust him even when you cannot trace him. Knowing that greater is he who is in you than the one who is in this world. If you stumbled in here or you're watching by way of the internet and you didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know him now. He is the savior of the world. And by grace, through faith, you receive him. You transfer your trust from yourself. Right now is a time of invitation. Do you know what that? You've been invited to many things in life. You now are invited to an eternal feast, an eternal dance, if you will, in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, to be with the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the saints forever and ever and ever. You're invited. And how should you come? Just as you are. Broken, dirty, fearful, doubting, shamed, bring it. As Jesus says, I have nailed everything to the cross and I have cleansed you in my blood. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I, I, Jesus said, will give you rest. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the truths of the gospel. We thank you for the power power in your word you spoke everything into existence and you speak now into our lives speak now to those who have never had an intimate saving relationship with Jesus and give them the gift of repentance and faith and raise them from death to life speak life to them and father for all those who have walked with you some for decades strengthen all in the faith Grow us all up into Christ and give us this confident assurance that he who began a good work, regardless of what it may look like today, he who began a good work will one day bring it to completion. And we give you all the honor, the praise, and the glory. In Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, glory be to God. Now we will go to the Lord's table together. If you are a professing member of the Lord Jesus Christ and a member of his family of faith, communing member in this church of age, and you participate with this, this, this table. The bread will be passed to you. It's juice when we get to the cup. The bread will be passed. Take a piece. Hang on to it till everyone has one, and I'll raise my hand and say, take and eat, and we'll eat together. And the cup will be passed, and you'll take a cup, and we'll do the same thing again at the end. We'll say, take and drink, and we'll drink together. I want you to pause for just a moment. We're going to say the Our Father when we get to the end of our prayer time, but before that, we're